Welcome everybody to uh, a new week of Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finan Jørgensen, this is my co-host Dahl Jørgensen, uh, and we are kicking off the spring 21 semester, uh, actually the whole year, with this book talk with Jamie Lorimer, who is Professor of Environmental Geography at University of Oxford, uh, and he will be talking about his new book, The Probiotic Planet. So I just leave the floor to you, uh, Jamie. Fantastic, thank you very much, Finn and, and Dolly for the uh, for the invitation, and it's it's great to be here. Am I, am I coming across clearly at, at your end there? So um, Dolly suggested I might talk a little bit about the kind of backstory to the book in terms of where it where it came from, the various projects it draws upon, and then to give something of an introduction and an overview of the argument. So. Uh, that's what I'll do uh, for the next 10-15 minutes or so. Uh, so the book, um, I guess, draws on a range of work I've done over the last five years since my first book came out, uh, initially starting off with some empirical work on rewilding. So rewilding is a model of conservation geared towards reintroducing species to try and um, tackle landscape scale issues. And in tracking rewilding, doing some work on the histories of rewilding and trying to get into the kind of politics of rewilding in terms of the different understandings of what wildness is among scientists. I had these um, Google alerts. Yeah. Who's talking about rewilding in different places? And I began to get this kind of weird parallel strand to the, the kind of ecologists, the macroecologists, a group of microbiologists and immunologists also talking about similar terms, also talking about biome restoration, talking about rewilding. Uh, and at the same time, I've been sort of interested in the rise of the microbiome as a new domain of uh, natural science, the ways in which the technologies associated with the Human Genome Project as they became more affordable. And if you like, the Human Genome Project became somewhat disappointing in its outcomes, and there was this focus on the microbial life in us, as well as the kind of core human genome. This emerging understanding of the human as a as a superorganism, or as a, you know, what, what um, immunologists, microbiologists would describe the human as a holobiont, there was this sense that um, there were missing species in the human microbiome, akin to what ecologists were describing in the macrobiome, wolves and beavers, if you like, were being, those metaphors were traveling into how ecologists and immunologists were trying to make sense of the micro. So, so it struck me that there was something interesting going on across these different scales. Uh, both in terms of the diagnosis of absence uh, and the scientific and increasingly practical experiments to return keystone species into these systems uh, in the hope that they might be able to address some of the problems associated with their, with their absence. So, so I did a, a bit of work which was initially just curious, sort of hanging out on social media, looking at these people who were running their own experiments on the microbiome. And I got particularly interested in people taking parasitic worms, these uh, hookworm, uh, which were being figured in some circles as um, keystone species akin, if you like, to the wolf uh, or the beaver, that they, their absence was behind this dysbiotic ecology that was, that was growing up in people's guts. And people were taking them, trading them, growing them, selling them. Um, that was a great story. And they were very keen to speak and very keen for me to take their worms. And yeah, I kept sending me these worms. And, I've yet to take the worms, but I'm sort of intrigued as to what you know what would happen. Um, so there was a kind of bit of online ethnography, and then yeah, this this thinking you know, has um, quite a bit of uh, traction within mainstream immunology. There's the rise of what's called eco-immunology. Um, people who've been running you know mouse models in laboratories increasingly 
worried that their mouse models weren't really capturing the kind of diversity of the microbiome and, and, and looking at experiments that might rewild the mouse models. And so there's clinical research going on and, and clinical trials giving people worms to, uh, to see how they operate. So there was a, if you like, a, a kind of piece of uh, science studies ethnographic work on, on that front. And that sort of informed the book. And then, and then since then, since the book's been published, um, somewhat serendipitously, I've been associated with a project that's looking at livestock and the environment and the relationship between livestock and the environment and a range of health and environmental problems. Uh, and we've come to become quite interested in manifestations of the probiotic turn, and I'll say what that is, in, in an agricultural setting. And there's not much about food and there's not much about farming in the book, but there's, there's a kind of missing empirical hole in the book that I'm now hoping to fill uh, with some new work that's looking at what's described as regenerative agriculture. Uh, and I can say a bit more about that. So, so I guess that's the context. Um, if we turn then to the substance of, of the argument. Uh, so the book rests on this meta-narrative, this kind of historical meta-narrative that we might usefully conceive of the Anthropocene as the outcome of the over-application of antibiotic modes of managing life. And by antibiotic modes of managing life, um, I'm thinking about you know, antibiotics as particular chemicals, but, but a more, if you like, systematic way of understanding and intervening into the circulation of ecological systems across a range of scales. And successful antibiotic projects either eradicate forms of life, or they certainly control, simplify, smooth, accelerate uh, the ways in which ecological systems work. And that could be anything from taking antibiotics to kind of tackle a particular pathogen, but which tends to you know, strip out the, the, the ecology uh, up to the rise of intensive agricultural systems, which tend to be premised on monocultures and an absence of diversity, up to systems for managing floods and fire, which are largely about, again, simplifying uh, the flow of water through a landscape, suppressing uh, fire systems, so everything is kind of orderly and, and controlled. And, Clearly, you know, that's had great benefits for some people in some parts of the world. It's you know, raised life expectancy, it's delivered health and delivered economic growth. But there is this growing anxiety that those antibiotic approaches have gone too far uh, and that around the world in different ecological contexts, we're seeing manifestations of what uh, Rob Wallace describes as blowback. So blowback is the kind of unintended consequence of the overuse of antibiotic approaches to managing life. And again, we can see these across a range of scales from the rise of antibiotic resistance, allergies, autoimmune diseases that are associated with microbial dysbiosis, uh, to you know, manifestations on the landscape scale to do with you know, extreme fires, extreme floods, uh, pests that are resistant to the use of pesticides, and almost up to the planetary scale if we start to think about uh, the shift from the Holocene to the Anthropocene as a manifestation of this uh, blowback, the kind of tipping across the threshold, um, extreme weather events, et cetera, et cetera. So again, comparable manifestations of the same tendencies when we conceive of the world on this kind of ecological, socio-ecological method. So we've got antibiotic excess, blowback, and then the book's particularly interested in a set of responses to blowback. Uh, that I describe as probiotic approaches. And so the claim is there's a probiotic turn underway in how life is being conceived and managed across these different scales. And, and probiotic approaches involve using life to manage life. So they involve uh, a kind of quite tightly understood understanding of an ecological system, which would 
identify what ecologists describe as keystone species, and these are species that have disproportionate influence within an ecosystem, uh, the wolves and the beavers being the classic example, whose uh, absence has caused problems and whose return might be able to secure the desired circulation of life within that system. Uh, and again, we can see examples across a range of scales from the hookworm up to um, efforts to restore soil ecologies for the purposes of agriculture, efforts to use uh, organisms for biocontrol in, in agricultural systems, the rewilding story we've talked about, but almost up to this growing interest now in particular keystones organisms as nature-based solutions for climate change. This story that we might return the mammoth and somehow the mammoth through its trampling of the snow would prevent the melting of the permafrost and would prevent the tipping point on that planetary scale. So the different scales, but the same idea, there are these organisms that have this disproportionate leverage on systems uh, that could be deployed for these purposes. Um, so that's, if you like, what the probiotic term looks like. Um, and that's the first half of the book is to kind of describe that and look at the modes of governing life associated with that and the scientific formulations uh, with it and, uh, and the particular modes of knowledge practice associated with going probiotic. But in a way, what's more interesting for me is there are lots of different ways of going probiotic. There isn't a single kind of, you know, solution. This is the solution to all of our problems. Um, that within the different uh, versions of uh, probiotic thinking, we find some important tensions, important differences that give us some uh, way as social scientists of thinking critically about this new paradigm, this new way of thinking about life and, and how it's governed. So, so the second half of the book picks three particular critical axes for thinking about the different ways of going probiotic. Um, one of which is the sort of geographer's concern with where in the world one might be able to go probiotic. Um, and there's a very patchy geography to who has the uh, degrees of control over their ecological exposures such that they can both keep the undesirable organisms at bay while cultivating uh, the desired intensity of exposure to, to the ones they want. And I think this through in relation to the hookworm, where there are people in parts of the world who still have an over um, exposure to hookworm that continues to cause all sorts of um, illness, um, and particularly rural areas of the global south uh, where people use um, feces as fertilizer, walk without shoes in, uh, in the countryside. You know, generally hookworm is taken as an indicator of levels of socioeconomic development. Uh, right the way up to the you know, people who are actively taking worms who tend to live in fairly well-educated urban, suburban uh, regions of the global north, particularly North America, Western Europe and, and, and Australia, um, have the kind of social capital and the economic capital to navigate these online spaces to secure their worms. And, uh, so there's an interesting, if not altogether surprising, political economy behind this uh, probiotic term. Um, but there's a story about, if you like, what happens to life if we optimize it for the probiotics. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of naive sense might be, well, it's great, you know, we're valuing nature, we're valuing these systems. Uh, but clearly there are some forms of life that are pre-redundant if it's just about the optimal functioning of systems. You know, we like hardworking beavers, they turn up on time, they do a good job, they don't take a holiday, you know, they can put people out of work. Um, we might even grow to like hookworms, particularly if we could kind of modify them so they didn't drink so much blood. But there's a whole load of organisms that you know, wouldn't really have a place in a system that was optimized around work. If, you know, if working uh, was what survival was made conditional upon, uh, then you could imagine you know, a, a kind of a undesirable ecological future in that way. 
So those are, I guess, two elements of that more critical take on what it might mean to go to go probiotic. I mean, I guess just to finish, one of the other stories, which is perhaps of interest to this audience here, is also trying to think through the coincidence between this probiotic turn in the sciences uh, with what's going on in new materialism and, and, and in environmental theory more generally. There's this interesting coincidence between uh, a turn towards uh, an ecological model of social theory in the writings of people like Donna Haraway and, and Bruno Latour and, and Anna Singh alongside developments in, in biology and, and immunology and microbiology. And, and in some ways, this is no accident. You know, some of these figures are collaborating with writing across the divide. I mean, the tour is, is doing a lot of work with Earth System scientists at the moment, is borrowing on ideas from Earth System science to shape his own idea about what politics should look like in the face of climate change. And Haraway's been collaborating uh, for some time with uh, a group of microbiologists and immunologists uh, very much shaped by the thinking of Lynn Margulis, who with Lovelock was one of the, the kind of key thinkers behind, behind Gaian theory. But, but in a way, I'm trying to, to kind of gauge why at this moment, key thinkers in social theory have turned to what I would describe as probiotic thinking as, as, a, as a necessary uh, mode of thought for the contemporary Anthropocene juncture. Uh, and the argument that I make fairly briefly in the book is that this is quite a useful epistemic approach in the context of uh, post-truth climate denying um, co-option, as Latour kind of describes, of the techniques from science studies by those on the right who'd want to undermine the credibility of science. There's a way in which social theory can build alliances with science to kind of shore up a place for certain types of science. Um, but also there's a very different ontology that we get from this science from the kind of ontology that was given to us by the biological sciences through the 20th century, which isn't about the individual survival of the fittest, kind of heroic um, neoliberal subjects doing battle. Um, you know, what we get from a kind of more symbiotic model of, of, of ecology that you'd get from some elements of conservation biology, but also very much from, uh, from microbiology and immunology is this idea that you know, it's about the relations, it's about the entanglement, it's not about the you know, the individual subject, it's much more about what goes on in the mix. And again, this is an ontology that Haraway and others have been advocating out of feminist theory for a long time, but finding it confirmed in um, the hard sciences, if you like, uh, means that there's a, there's a tendency towards a, a mode of scientism, if you like, that you could see there. And you know, they're both careful about this, you know, being kind of good historians of science and, and, and sort of social people involved in the social studies of science. But nonetheless, I think it's important to kind of be aware of that that there is a rapprochement underway between social theory uh, and, um, and the sciences uh, that we could you know, look, look carefully at. I don't know how I'm doing on my 15 minutes, but maybe that's a good point to, uh, to stop and open up for, uh, for questions. Thanks so much, Jamie. A great introduction uh, to this book. And we do have a couple questions in the chat that I'll get to in just a second. Um, so, but I wanted to start off um, as moderator, moderator prerogative uh, here in thinking about the words that are used with this probiotic. So being for the biotic versus symbiotic, which you mentioned in these last comments about being with the biotic and how you see that play out in these uh, stories? Yeah, it's a great question. And I did grapple with that, as you could imagine, if you're going to make it the first word in your title as to why 
that particular um, prefix before the biotic. Uh, and it's fair to say that there's not, it's not that I'm naming an actor's category. You know, if this was a book about sustainability, let's say it would be easy to say, this is how these folks describe themselves. There's a small number of people who would claim to be doing probiotic science, but the label itself is somewhat tarnished because of a load of charlatan efforts to sell inactive microbial products on, on the internet. And um, so again, I was sort of wary about what that might mean. For me, it was more, it was more a useful comparator to the anti of the antibiotic, if you like, if there is a kind of historical genealogy that's coming through uh, in this way. Uh, I, I guess also, you know, being probiotic involves killing a lot of stuff. Um, you know, that probiotic interventions are biopolitics writ large. And, and, you know, in deciding to intervene in this way, you are by necessity heading off preventing certain futures that would come about. So, so there isn't the same sympoesis or symbiosis that perhaps if there was, you know, a more affirmative way of doing things. And clearly there are models again probiotic that involve a bit less death. Um, but, you know, some of the rewilding projects, uh, at least in the initial setting up of them, involve some pretty serious, you know, as you know, Dolly, you know, kind of clearing the land, you know, making sure that the right things happen and involve quite a lot of policing along the way to make sure that the right type of emergent property happens. So, so maybe that, I mean, I hadn't given it a huge amount of thought, but maybe that's what the word pro does rather than the sim in describing that as a mode of managing life. I think that fits really well with um, Simon Pooley's comments, um, comments question about how this relates to nature conservation and how it makes it similar to this kind of interventionist geoengineering approach, right? It's about control. And he's wondering how does that then play with intrinsic values of landscapes or species? So are those ideas lessened in this kind of approach because you're attempting to okay thanks Simon nice to see you I, I mean I think clearly one of the key shifts that is underway in terms of the rise of uh, rewilding as an approach to conservation uh, is this shift from a, what, what we describe as a compositionless approach to understanding nature which is a list of species and we just want to keep those species there to a much more process orientated functionalist model, uh, which is about you know, enabling kind of key systems within ecological systems to persist. It would value things like the diversity and abundance and resilience over and above a list of, of rarities. Uh, and that you know, I think is, is true to what goes on in terms of how, uh, at least in theory, rewilding projects operate. They are still, of course, um, you know, they need charismatic species to secure funding and they need charismatic species to secure popular support and when charismatic species do the wrong thing or charismatic species die uh, then you know they, they come up with the same issues that, that excuse me compositionless approaches had previously the question of control is is really interesting I think in this because on the one hand you know the story we get from many in 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 the at least in the versions of the rewilding movement that I was looking at was that these are novel ecosystems these are non-analog uh, Anthropocene ecology. So, so you need to have a baseline, you need to have a benchmark, you need to have some sense of what, let's say, Europe was like 10,000 years ago, but you're not going to get that. You're going to get some new version of it, some scrambled version of it, which will come into existence, but it might have the functions within it that you'd want, which were missing previously. Um, but without the baseline, uh, what control looks like is quite difficult because you're not just managing it towards that archetype. You've got to let things emerge. Um, 
So there's a there's a, a Dutch philosopher, Joseph Kulertz, who talks about rewilding in the Netherlands as the controlled decontrolling of ecological controls, which sounds like an oxymoron. There's too many controls in there. But if you think it through, the controlled decontrolling of ecological controls, it's a kind of recalibration of the antibiotic model. It's a recalibration of control, not a kind of laissez-faire rejection of control. Uh, you know that wouldn't work. They say we need to you know, we just tweak the parameters of control. We're still in control. It's a control decontrolling. And yeah, for me, that was quite a, a good way of capturing what's going on in a kind of epistemic context where you don't know that you would have the archetype you want, but you know that there are, if you like, systemic properties that you could measure and seek to maximize resilience, abundance, diversity, which again are you know, slippery. Um, then, you know, we've got 24 pandas and, and 14 egrets and you know, tick the box. Great. And I think this, um, you know, that comes from the, the kind of ecological rewilding side of things. And so the next question um, from Gabriella goes back to this, you know, probiotic is actually something, I mean, this can of hookworms that you, that you drink, right? And you're actually, you're putting them into your gut, which is supposed to help your personal health. Um, so as a public health measure um, and thinking about food. How does that play in to, you know, to, to your work and thinking about what a probiotic control means as far as food and the, the things that we normally consume? Hmm. I mean, it's, it's very difficult um, for a range of, I guess, technological and historical reasons to think about how that um, process of rewilding would work across a whole food system in which um, we were both producers and consumers, if you like. I mean, we, we did some work as part of the work on the microbiome with the Food Standards Agency. So that's the government agency in charge of uh, deciding if, if restaurants are hygienic enough. And um, you know, the model they have there, and it's probably true in many places, is a presence-absence model. You know, are there any microbes here? If there are microbes here, that's bad news you need to clean it more and they were quite like a qualitative measure you know what what is the ecological makeup of this surface you know, potentially we could think about there being a stable ecology of microbes on the surface as there are in you know, many people's kitchens no one's getting sick um that would be if you like a kind of stable mature ecology you could have in your kitchen akin to what you might have in a in a nature reserve or in a you know in in, in a park but at the moment although the devices the sequencing devices are getting better and getting more affordable there's not a practical way that you in your kitchen would know robustly scientifically whether you had you know the right type of microbes in your you know in, in your kitchen clearly we have all sorts of vernacular ways of knowing and cooking and eating through fermentation practices through other ways in which we encourage you know the cultivation of and and the exposure of microbes to to us and, and i guess increasingly people are calibrating the types of antibiotic approaches that they have in their in their livelihoods. I mean, the, the book explores a whole group of what Heather Paxson describes as post-pasturian approaches to hygiene. So these are kind of ways of trying to nurture exposure to the desirable microbes, what microbiologists would call the old friend microbes, while keeping at bay the, uh, the you know, the, the undesirable pathogens, the crowd infections in that way. Uh, and, you know, food and, and farming is obviously a place in which that um, relationship has been thought through and mediated for for, for, for a long for a long period of time. Um, empirically, there's not much in there in the book, as I said at the beginning, but I think we can all think of 
vernacular examples from the places that we live in where either there are persistent uh, traditional practices or increasingly reinvented, rediscovered practices, particularly around fermentation, which is having a, you know, a moment into the hipster Western circles at the moment, uh, where people are seeking a sort of proactive exposure to microbes under the auspices of health uh, because of a sense of, you know, missing microbes that are causing all kind of dysbiotic problems in their guts, allergies, autoimmune conditions. I guess just the final thing, sorry, I've got a lot to say about this, but the final thing would be um, you know, it appears from speaking to immunologists and microbiologists that it's the, it's the first years of life that are so significant in terms of setting up our microbiome and, and training our immune systems. Uh, and there's only so much you can do retrospectively if you become aware in your 20s or your 30s that you've got all these conditions to kind of reset uh, not just the ecology, but also the way your immune system has learned to mediate the relationship of particular microbes in your, in your body. Yeah, we see that as parents um, of children, right? Three second rule. Well, if it falls on the floor, it's less than three seconds. Just go ahead, pick it up. And you're, you're consuming some microbes, some dirt, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> um, so we had a question from Micah um, who wants to ask you to, to talk more about this probiotic and the case of disasters. So things like wildfire or flooding and how probiotic is understood, you know, how you apply it to those cases. Okay, so so I guess what you know what we've seen, um, at least in quite prominent circles around climate change uh, adaptation, is the rise of what what have now been described as nature-based solutions to environmental problems. Um, and the idea is that you could, in some ways, reset ecological systems that would help to tackle. Um, disasters across a range of scales, you know, climate change being one of them, but things like flooding and things like uh, fire suppression uh, by using life to manage life. So, that, so I guess the classic example with flooding is, is, is a beaver, uh, the idea that you could reintroduce beavers, fence them into particular parts of a river catchment, certainly in the UK where they're doing this, you fence them in upstream uh, and they build their dams and they take out the modern drainage systems that, that farmers were paid to put in. Uh, and in so doing, they slow the flow of the water through the system uh, and they help to prevent flooding downstream. And so that we could see as a, a probiotic approach to tackling problems of, of, of flooding. Uh, I mean, with fire, I don't know so much about the ecology of fire, but, but fire um, regimes, as I understand them, had tended to be uh, about suppressing, suppressing fire and suppressing fire to the point that you had such an accumulation of, of biomass that when a fire happened, it was, it was devastating. Um, and you'd have a monoculture of trees that were all you know, of a certain type, so they all matured at a certain point in time, so they'd burn with great intensity. Uh, so a probiotic approach would perhaps simulate naturalistic fire dynamics, so you'd have fire more often. Often it would you know, replicate burning strategies that indigenous people had used and that forests had you know, kind of co-evolved co with. Uh, in that way. Uh, I'm sure there are kind of key species that are missing from forests that would have knocked down rotten trees that might have in some ways made the forest less uh, prone to these particularly pathological burns uh, over time. I'd have to go and have a look, but there's certainly in the kind of in the shifting paradigms of fire management, I've heard people talk about nature-based solutions to, to, to fire management al alongside others. That makes me think about when I lived in um... Uh, Umeo and the city had burned in the 1800s up to where a tree break was. So there was a wider 
um, road that then had trees that were not as, as flammable. So they actually were in this, um, yeah, use of a biological stop um, for, for fires. And that was actually after that time period, a lot of the cities here were redone that way um, so that they would have such kind of fire breaks. Um, thinking about going, going back a little to uh, Simon's uh, question and control, he has a follow-up here about thinking about the diversity of the ecosystems that you're talking about always is decided by somebody. So how does that work? Who becomes, I think, experts in your story to decide what worms you should ingest or what you know um, species should be brought back on a, on a landscape scale? So where do experts fit in contra others? Who are they? Okay, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I mean, to be honest, a lot of these experiments have come about accidentally. Um, so they're sort of serendipitous encounters through processes that were unplanned. Let's say, so if we think of the Oostvaterplatz, an example in the Netherlands, uh, which is a polder landscape, it was reclaimed from the sea. I think it was going to be an oil refinery. They never quite fixed the drainage, it became a kind of accidental nature reserve. Then Franz Vera, who's a charismatic Dutch paleoecologist, uh, persuades the Dutch government to put these large herbivores in and it becomes this flagship experiment. So you've got a kind of paleoecologist, but he's a bureaucrat and he's a kind of entrepreneurial policymaker. Uh, the example that I study in the UK, which is the NEP rewilding project, which is uh, in Sussex, so sort of you know, lowland Britain, former dairy farm on not very good agricultural land, but actually quite, a, you know, it's a very affluent part of the countryside. It's not a marginal part of the countryside. Uh, and they, influenced by Franz Vera, take their land out of production uh, and, uh, in, again, introduced a kind of suite of herbivores, but they were largely what was available. They're sort of hardy breeds of British cows, pigs and horses that were there or thereabouts. Um, they stick them in and they let them go as a slightly last-ditch effort to see if they can make any money out of this system that was falling down around their ears. So um, it's not very coherent. It's, there's not a kind of master plan. You know, there's not a group of people in a room saying, we are going to rewild the world and we're going to work it out. You look at the websites of Rewilding Europe and it looks it's, it's very well organized. And the rest of it. But like all of these things, it's, you know, it is it's quite serendipitous. Um, and I think it's to a certain extent what works. There's lots of failures along the way. Things die, things don't turn up, things get eaten, things get lost. Um, and then I suppose through trial and error, they come up with a, with a set of tools uh, which then breed and can be replicated and are sent out to other parts of around Europe. So, so on the one hand, there is a place for science, but often it's a sort of post hoc justification for experiments that worked previously. So there's a lot of people now filling in the gaps, doing quite sophisticated, what they call topological modeling of ecological interactions to try and work out why it is that certain species are keystone species, why they work in certain situations. But that knowledge didn't exist in advance of the kind of trial and error experiment to what was happening. And the same is true on the microbiome. So the folk taking the hookworm, uh, at least the patients taking the worms were desperate. They got to the end of what modern Western medicine could give them to tackle autoimmune allergic diseases. Somebody proposed this hypothesis that it was to do with the absence of worms. They had a clinical trial. They were oversupplied with volunteers. Some of the volunteers on the trial had a good outcome, and then they lost their worms because at the end of the trial, they, you know, they, were, they were cleared. So they weren't looking for their own worms. They got their own worms. And these, you know, these were people very much at the kind of frontier of medical therapeutics because the state of the art wasn't working for them. And then subsequently the scientists come along behind and try and work out, well, why is it that in these patients it's working otherwise? So, 
so there's a, there's a role for expertise, um, but the expertise is not in the ascendance in terms of driving the experiments at this stage, it's fair to say. There's also a kind of maverick strand of the probiotic theory, which is skeptical about expertise, or at least skeptical about scientific expertise, um, that interfaces uh, with um, a range of conspiracy, a range of, I guess, the kind of anti-vaccination movement, you know, which has, you know, there's, there's overlaps between the probiotic movement and the anti-vaccination movement in that way, um, that will cherry pick science or, you know, have nothing to do with science or will look to Gwyneth Paltrow as the source of all advice about holistic healing in that way. So it's a it's a messy epistemic landscape, but at least in terms of those people we'd recognize as bona fide ecological scientists, uh, they're only now really coming to the fore as the people driving and explaining uh, what, you know, what, what this process is. I'd like to ask a, a follow-up question to that, um, because in a way it's interesting to hear about in this, in a way it's a, it's a modern human body you describe, right? So you, people, well, they maintained this, this landscape of the body through these pioneers. Uh, you get kind of fringe movements in this too. Uh, do you see or do you think that there will be some kind of mainstreaming happening here in a way where this becomes something that's really, well, taken as like, widely accepted, that this, this is an activity that people uh, do? And in what way do you think it'll change in that process? Okay, I mean, I guess the answer to that question is probably policy domain specific in a way. So, you know, so what, what I might say about rewilding and agriculture maybe speaks to what happens on the microbial scale, but I think they're different. I mean, if we take the micro microbial scale, um, yeah, the book was written in, finished this time last year, pretty much pre-pandemic. I thought, you know, I'll say, Mike, we'll get this great. 2020 will be a year in which, you know, probiotic thinking is, uh, is, is ascendant. And then the pandemic comes along and we've seen, you know, for good reasons, the escalation of antibiotic approaches to, to, to living with microbial life. You know, and people wash their hands much more. Uh, they wear masks. They don't interact with each other. You know, there's probably a fascinating microbial signature in all of us in terms of the, you know, the, the um, shrinking of, of, of social interactions. Uh, maybe as, as the story unfolds around the causes of COVID and the differential experience of COVID in people's different immune systems, there may well be a more complicated ecological argument that comes to the fore as to why it is that people have different, different responses. Um, but it's probably fair to say that, that you know, the pandemic has pushed back the kind of, you know, the, the, at least the sort of enthusiasm for probiotics in some influential circles in the, in the Western world. There was a, a push by some towards what was called targeted hygiene to kind of relax various fastidious uh, hygiene, you know, around hand washing, particularly for kids. It's a harder sell at the moment for, for, for good reasons. So, so I think on the microbial scale, I, I, I don't think there's a great tip in public policy happening. And the particular associations between the rise in autoimmune allergic disease and missing microbes is there as a hypothesis and it's there in correlation studies, but there's not a, a kind of definitive silver bullet, if you like, that would make it easy to persuade policymakers that you know, every child needs to have this. You know, there's, there's definitely, you know, it's starting to signal around you know, cesarean sections and breastfeeding, but, but those have already been you know, identified and moralized for, you know, for, for some time. On the macro scale, I mean, and just speaking from a UK context where we're going through quite a substantial reform of our agricultural policy landscape post-Brexit, 
uh, we are seeing you know, quite significant, uh, at least noises around rewilding, although they won't call it that because the farmers don't like it. But at least the, the subsidization of uh, ecosystem restoration processes uh, in the interests of you know, what the environment minister said were, you know, public money for public goods. Uh, that we should, you know, we should, if we're going to subsidize agriculture, we should subsidize for prevention, carbon sequestration, all the rest of it. And that seems to be mainstreamed into the UK agricultural system. It's, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of, uh, of agriculture at large. It's, it's kind of on the margins of the common agriculture policy, but it's, it's still to really break in there. The US is awash with excitement for what's called regenerative agriculture, but that's a big baggy term that seems to be trying to reposition cows as the saviors of the climate rather than the, the causes of, of climate change. And there's some substance to that, but I, I'm a bit skeptical that that is a, a major shift in policy rather than just a semantic shift in, uh, in picking up sexy labels that would um, you know, burnish the credentials of concentrated animal feeding. Um, yeah, so we have a, a question from Kristen. Um, since you mentioned in that, answer both you know the microbiome and the larger landscapes as a researcher how do you handle working at such different scales so what do you have to keep in mind when looking across the divergent scales that you're presenting here in this book i think i, I got the first half of your question about as a researcher thinking across different scales yes uh, and then I lost you after that. Yeah. So just how how are you? How do you think across different scales with this book? What should you keep in mind if one is doing comparative, kind of comparative, kind of you know, synthetic study across such widely divergent scales? Yeah. I mean, it's quite tough. I guess. I mean, I guess there's some unifying concepts that I was tracking originally when I went back to the sort of origin story of the project that uh, ecological theory, which is obviously a big you know big field. Uh, was offering concepts that seemed to have traction in these different scales, even if very few of the people writing, you know, I was sort of following science and nature, and you'd have a piece by, you know, an eminent immunologist, and you'd have a piece by an eminent, you know, landscape ecologist, and they'd be talking about similar stuff, but they probably weren't reading each other's work. So, so I was trying to look at, you know, what are the kind of common conceptual reference points across the two, uh, and then really, you know, having conversations with interesting people who are the people writing these papers and say, well, what if, you know, what if we were to take your concept of ecological restoration and think about it uh, at the microbial scale or, or, or vice versa? And often you know, these, are, these are people who are keen to explore that idea. I think as a social scientist, it's always hard to corroborate people's claims. You know, you have to sort of take at face value the fact that it's what's published in this journal. Clearly, that's the truth. I mean, you know, Three years later, you discover that their peers have rejected it. In that way, I've, I put all my hope on this being the kind of breakthrough article that confirms my idea that this is a big shift in the history of science. And so, I, I guess it's you know it's becoming kind of have a sort of participatory knowledge of that field, or at least a kind of understanding that field without ever going to you know, be designing experiments. Um, I think what, what one of the projects that we did do, which was quite fun, was to try and do some participatory microbiology as a collaboration with a colleague who's a microbiologist uh, in which I had to become the kind of public face of the microbiological project to the public that we were working with. And so I had to sort of get savvy enough about the basics of microbiology and sequencing to be able to describe to a group of households in, in Oxford, this was who were interested in domestic hygiene practices. Um, and just, I guess, being able to, to be able to be conversant in those fields was uh, easy. 
I'm not sure I've quite thought through the kind of textbook explanation. You know, if you wanted to do this as a PhD, what it what it would mean. Um, but there's probably some interesting things to be said there. That's good. Um, now there's a question about. So we've talked. You've talked some about antibiotics, which, um, and we we take those generally against bacterial infections. But what about fungus, fungi in your story? Um, them as keystone species or restorative in um, these senses. So how, how do they fit into the picture? So I have to start by saying I know very little about fungi other than what I've read from other bodies of work. Um, I'd, I'd encourage anybody who wanted to know more about fungi, not only to read Anna Singh's book, which everyone's heard about, but there's this great book by uh, Merlin Sheldrake that was published recently called Entangled Life, which is a, a kind of love story for, for fungi. And, and, and he talks about the kind of evolution of fungi and the origins of fungi, but he has a nice chapter about uh, a collection of fungal enthusiasts who are uh, growing fungi for what I would describe as probiotic uh, purposes. So they are um, selecting fungi that would do what's called bioremediation, let's say, so the, the cleaning up of toxic chemicals in, in water and in the landscape uh, and, you know, training fungi as a growth medium that would, you know, become you know, useful for all sorts of, sorts of purposes. So there's definitely a fungal story in there uh, and clearly, um, you know, fungi and bacteria interact in, in interesting and important ways within any ecology. Uh, they didn't figure particularly prominently in the experiments that I studied with hookworm or, or, or in um, you know, the, the other gut uh, experiments, but, but maybe that's just a consequence of them not being particularly well documented in the sequence archives, so they don't show up as commonly as the bacteria, which tends to be what uh, at least the early generation of sequencing went after, the particular kind of genetic components that they trained the program to look for meant that bacteria became over-represented within the databases. And so then I was wondering about um, the issue of your time scale here. Um, so the cases that you're looking at, because you mentioned how, you know, you use a scientist's work and you kind of assume, okay, well, this is leading cutting edge, but okay, in three years, we might find out it's been completely rejected. Um, so what, what time frame are you looking at in these things? Are you going back to think about how uh, you know, penicillin development thought about antibiotics and probiotics up to now, or is it is it very much a contemporary study? I mean, I, th I think the you know the history of uh, groups of people going probiotic is asynchronous across different policy domains, and so um, you know, there, there has been an interest in the consequences of intensive agricultural systems around the loss of microbial life. Uh, in food and agriculture for, for some time, you know, and that, and that you know, has a, a rich history going back to the 19th century and the rise of the sort of permaculture movement and, and the organic movement, let's say. There are some interesting early histories of, of you know, microbial concerns about uh, missing microbes and probiotics, particularly this is uh, kind of his name, uh, Melechnikov, who was a, a Russian um, yogurt enthusiast, I think. Uh, and so there are these precursors, but but really, um, you know, the microbial story only kicks in, uh, I think, once it becomes possible to sequence and make visible what's missing. So, so to a certain extent, there's an asynchronicity depending on the availability of the technologies that could reveal the ecological interactions. 
the book makes passing reference to that to those historical backstories. I mean, the, the main historical chapter is interested in um, histories of backbreeding uh, under National Socialism. There's some pieces that I did with Clemens Driessen earlier about um, a particular idea of wildness that was ascendant in in Germany and and, and other parts of Europe in the in the early 20th century that came to shape. Uh, the pursuit of the authentic aurochs, the kind of the, the uh, wild antecedent of domestic cattle, uh, and their use as tools for both hunting and ecological restoration in, in Eastern Europe. So, so I guess it's to open up the idea that there is a dark side to these probiotic versions, and that dark side is entangled in this case in histories of fascism, xenophobia, national socialism. I mean, that was very early in the advent of ecology as a science. I mean, it, they weren't describing themselves as ecologists, but some of the thinking there comes to shape some versions of ecology, which we still see versions of in, in deep ecology now, the sort of deep green that sort of bleeds towards fascism in, in some parts of the world. So, so there's a kind of intellectual history that runs through uh, on the macro scale. And to a certain extent on the micro scale, you know, there is a version of microbial restoration that's very caught up with a kind of neo-primitivist um, you know, we will find the golden stool in the body of the untouched savage who happens to be a Hadza, you know, living in, in Bits, Tanzania. And that's that's where one should go if you wanted to truly rewild oneself. And so and that, you know, there's a history and anthropology of that of that strand of thinking that again we can we can trace back intellectually. So I don't do that work. I think it'd be a really interesting project to do. I, I draw on sort of Donald Worcester's work on the history of ecology a bit, you know, and he he sort of takes that story up to Kind of late 1980s, I think, but there's the sort of subsequent work to, to be told. There's a nice history of immunology, I'm going to forget the guy's name, uh, who talks about the rise of eco-immunology, uh, which I also draw on a bit. I could dig that out if people wanted the, wanted the reference. Well, I'm thinking about these, these temporal scales, both of kind of what we research as, as researchers, and then the temporal, temporal scales of the organisms themselves is interesting. Um, and Simon had made a comment um, in the chat about, you know, the, the microflora of crocodiles that you're looking into the Jurassic with it. So thinking about the, the time scales and the, the histories that are innate, if you will, in these ecosystems or made in these ecosystems. Um, and it's an interesting thing then to think about how humans attempt to control those systems. Mm. I mean, one of the interesting themes that um, I didn't pick up on much, and I know others are doing work in this area, is where this work begins to interface with extinction studies, and particularly the idea of, I guess, what are called ecological anachronisms. So, you know, species that exist in the present but they're peculiar because their functional role is not clear. And that becomes apparent because they used to be amidst a whole collection of other species who have now gone extinct. So they are, if you like, haunted by the absence of particular organisms. And we've got reasonably good at detecting that on a macro scale, on a landscape scale, you know, the, the, the missing wolves, if you like, in the UK, or even the missing elephants in Monbiot's reading of it. What that would mean on the microbial scale is much harder to know because these microbes don't tend to be very well preserved in the uh, in the in the remains that are left behind. But but if if as it's becoming clear that microbes have this quite substantial ability to shape the host, uh, and um, and they're different now to so they were in the past, and you know, what kind of hosts 
were we once among and you know what 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 are we haunted by if there is that kind of microbial uh, organism absence within, within these systems but uh, yeah i think those temporalities are really rich to to think through and they're clearly really important if you're thinking about recombining re-entangling for human health or rewilding projects but also to i guess document the alarming speed at which systems are are falling apart yeah, I think there's also some um, interesting similarities with the whole paleo diet debate too, which is in a way, at some point in our evolutionary history, we screwed up, but now we can try to go back towards it by changing what we eat and so on. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to, to connect to there, uh, but we should uh, wrap up now. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time. So uh, I just want to thank you, Jamie, for uh, this very interesting both book presentation and discussion. Um, Looking forward to taking a closer look at the book too. Uh, and thank you also to everyone who attended the talk uh, to uh, listen to it. So, yeah, thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining and thanks for the invitation. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to follow up with uh, questions if anyone wants to email. Uh, just you find me, find me online. Yeah.